Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and this episode will continue to bring you conversations from the Atlanta sessions. This time, we'll be discussing issues around the role of awareness in cybercrime prevention. We are joined by Dr. Marty DeLima, who is professor at the School of Social Work in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Minnesota, and who has been conducting research into online scams in particular with aging populations. Scott Wright will also be along to answer the basic question of what cybersecurity awareness is, so make sure you stay around with us for that. So let's jump into the interview here as I just asked Dr. DeLima about how it was that a gerontologist came to be studying cybercrime. Right, so there is a perception, and some of it is evidence-based, some of it is stereotype, that older adults are more susceptible to financial fraud and scams relative to younger adult populations. And so that's really what drew me to this field and how I kind of entered into criminology. My background was actually, I started out in elder abuse and looking at elder abuse research from a more policy and social work perspective. And then from there, became fascinated by financial exploitation by friends and family and also from that point really understood that it was financial scams that were also causing a lot of harm to older adult populations and there was a lot of mystery and paradox there because in many of the cases the older adult presented with full cognitive capacity and so my research question became then well if someone seems to, or at least appears to have full executive functioning, how is it that they came to oftentimes trust the fraud criminal more than their own family? The discipline of gerontology, which I know nothing about, does it bring a set of tools that help with the analysis of, of fraud in older populations? I think so. Gerontology is in its very nature, interdisciplinary. So my training as a gerontologist, we focused on the biopsychosocial aspects of aging. And also because it's looking at aging, not just old people, it uses life course perspectives. You know, how do our experiences in early childhood and even before birth affect how we age and our well-being in older adulthood? And I love that about my field. And I think a lot of other fields should, should learn from gerontology to really understand what it means to be interdisciplinary. The social aspect is something that jumps out to me right away. Uh, have you been looking at all at the social environment around people who are older and their relationships with families? Yeah, absolutely. Some of the biggest topics that we focus on are in terms of Finance, for example, or intergenerational transfers of wealth, also caregiving as people age or become enter into roles of caregivers, how that places strain on families and a lot of family systems, and also how, in the case of elder financial exploitation, how it may be viewed in some families as kind of payment for the services that they're providing to their older adult parents in, in terms of care. So it's like a transactional relationship. Finance is an interesting aspect of this and the control of finance. 
Have you noticed any impact of being a victim of scamming and having control over your finances? One of the reasons we think older adults are less likely to report that they were victims of scams relative to younger adults is that fear of losing control, losing autonomy over their financial decision-making. I think they believe, and maybe rightly so, that their family members, once they discover what's been happening, will just come in and take over. And it's kind of a symbol of autonomy and agency to manage your own money. So to lose that, it's, it's like losing your sense of self and pride and independence. Did you talk to victims of, of fraud? I do interview victims of fraud. Many of them are older. Some of them are not. And it's hard for them to articulate those fears and issues. They often talk about feeling deeply embarrassed and ashamed but I've never had a victim verbalize that they were afraid that their family would take over. They were afraid that their family would make them feel more ashamed and say things like, how could you not have seen the red flags here? How did you let this happen? Which is already messages they were telling themselves. But none of them could say, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose control of my checking account after right. this. Yeah. That victim blaming is an interesting aspect of, of particularly cyber crimes. Within a family dynamic, I assume that's quite a powerful source of harm. Yeah, I think among all the different types of crime that exist, fraud is unique in that the victim has to be a willing participant in their own exploitation. They had to believe what was told to them at some point. Otherwise, it would be identity theft or it would be theft of some kind, but not if it's a scam. And so there is just so much self-blame. And in my studies, I do ask them, who do you hold accountable for what happened to you? And nearly everyone does arrive at some point at the scammer. It was the criminal. But the majority of people also say, myself. There are a lot of programs out there for cybersecurity education and fraud awareness. There's a cybersecurity awareness month in October. In Canada, at least, there's a fraud prevention month in February. These things have been going on for a while, though, and the fraud doesn't seem to be stopping. Is there anything that we're doing when we provide advice and try to build awareness that you think is not suitable for the, the groups that you work with? I think that efforts at fraud education are useful and they're working and they work for the people that hear the message. When some of my earlier research looking at individuals that reported a scam those who said they knew about the fraud before they were targeted were between 40 to 80 percent less likely to be a victim than those who had never heard about that scam type before. To me, that indicates that, yeah, fraud awareness education and that cybersecurity training is effective, but does it reach the most vulnerable people? The other thing that we need to recognize is that fraud perpetrators are experts in the ability to get people into states of high emotional arousal where they're not recalling on their prior knowledge of cybersecurity, where they behave in ways that in hindsight, they're like, what was I thinking? I know better. I've taken part in my company's cybersecurity trainings, but it all went out the window. So I think we need to realize that we're up against an emotional state that overrides people's reasonable yeah. selves. Is there any aspects to doing research with older adults that you think 
other disciplines should be aware of if they're planning on doing studies with with older adults? One of the challenges that we face is how do you educate someone with early stage cognitive impairment where their abilities and their capacity to learn is just going to start to diminish more over time. One way that we can think creatively about this is educating the people that surround them, like their caregivers, their family members. Um, How do we get physicians to include questions about financial health in health screenings? How do we get other social services providers to consider someone's financial well-being in older age and their financial vulnerability as part of the overall picture of their wellness? So that's one way we can kind of tackle this. You know, how do other disciplines think about this and kind of integrate? But it's it's a challenge. In that case, then, the target audience of, of awareness would be a family group rather than an individual. Yeah. Family groups are providers. Does that have an impact on, on how you design those programs then? Because yes, absolutely. And then you have the other challenges. You know, caregivers are strapped for time. They're already mm-hmm. under information overload. How do you get this on their radar too? It's one more thing that they have to do. And there's low motivation. That's why when I come back to it, I, again, I do a lot of consumer education. I work with AARP. I work with other groups that that is their primary focus on education. But I don't think we can diminish the impact of structural interventions and regulation on preventing the message from reaching us as consumers in the first place. Like the TRACED Act, which essentially forces phone carriers to stop robocalls from reaching our phones. Those types of laws and policies and practices are really what I think keeps us safe because it takes the decision making off our hands. We don't have to decide is this legitimate call or not. If we're not getting the illegitimate calls, we don't have to be burdened by that decision. That does raise questions about libertarian paternalism, though. Who, who gets to decide which sets of calls we don't receive? Right. And I'm sure that there are some gray areas there. But I think for this particular case, I can't think of a single consumer aside from the scammers themselves who would want those calls to come into yeah. their phone. There are much more gray area cases. Let's take Venmo, for example, or uh, Zelle and all these peer-to-peer money transfer apps. That's become a new hotbed of scams using social engineering. The way to prevent people from directly transferring money out of their accounts to a criminal who they don't believe is a criminal, obviously, might be to put in some extra barriers and hurdles that they have to go through, holding the money temporarily before the criminals can withdraw it from a different account. Those impinge on our values of speed, ease, and convenience. So what level of inconvenience are consumers willing to take on in order to keep themselves safe, especially when the vast majority of transactions are legitimate? So those are the harder questions, I think. Most people would love that Google, for example, has gotten so much better at filtering out phishing emails. I don't think anyone's complaining that their liberty has been infringed on, that they're not getting to see the email from the Nigerian prince anymore. So I think there's easy cases and more challenging trade-offs that we need to consider as a society. Let me pose a hypothetical to you here. Let's say you can filter out 99% of the scams. Do you think that because of how good 
that 1% of scams would have to be in order to get around those technical filters. That you're creating a, a slightly stranger environment for the, the people who are then trying to detect that fraud because they're only exposed to the cream of the crop. They don't get a warm-up. It's, it's them versus the number one seed straight out of the gate. Right, right. You're almost, the hypothetical is almost like a novel virus. You know, if it's a virus, it's very similar to ones we've been exposed yeah, to in the past. Yeah. We might be inoculated from it. But if it's so novel and so new, we can be hit really hard. And there is some research that shows that kind of weak versions of a scam, you know, like the types of phishing emails that an employer might send out to its employees to teach them, you know, cybersecurity practices and hygiene are is effective. There's a diminishing effect over time. And but I think that right now we need to do anything we can to reduce the massive volume of fraud that we're targeted with every yeah. day. Like every day we're getting robocalls. calls. Yeah, you yeah. Know, every day we're getting, you know, someone's trying to steal our information. So I'll take anything we got if it's yeah, 99% yeah. and let the 1% that are sophisticated slip through. But it also leads to kind of this evolution of the scams. You know, yeah. if they have to be really good, then yeah. we have to be even better. But that's just how it'll be. Maybe it'll keep the kind of bottom feeder scammers who can't develop the ideas themselves out of the picture, out of the game. Yeah, yeah. And then reduce the load on, on police forces. Absolutely. Like yeah. yeah. Yeah, because we still get people who succumb to scams that are kind of old news that they should, you know, that we already did huge consumer push on. And and it's just like, yeah, if they didn't fall for that, then, yeah, the law enforcement resources could go after some of the more new and novel scams. I thought it was really interesting just before when you mentioned healthcare professionals as part of financial health being sort of included in that. Do you think there are organizations that we could include as, I guess, the, the impact section of the research that we're doing to improve fraud education? Yeah. I mean, the other big sector is obviously financial services, and they do a lot. And they also have skin in the game, right? Yeah. Like if their consumers are def their customers are defrauded, not only do they lose the money, they probably lost their customer. So, yeah. um, so finance is one schools, you know, thinking starting from early age, you know, I can't tell you how many undergraduates say, I wish that I had basic finance in high school and, you know, how do you pay taxes? Like basic financial education. Although I have to say that financial literacy is kind of this one area of, of mm. mastery that it doesn't fully inoculate you from persuasion literacy and yeah. being able to resist a fraud attempt especially when the fraud is not really designed around money. You know, it could be a grandchild is in trouble mm. or, you know, you need to perform some sort of action to, you know, keep your information safe online. Like it's not really, you're not really calling on your knowledge of like how the stock market works yeah, to make sure. a decision. So we need to be realistic about what kind of programs are, will help. But yeah, in terms of healthcare, healthcare is a great, example because it's a place it's something that we all use at some point in our lives and right. if there are the messengers of this information it's just one more point of interaction about it with the training that one would provide to an older adult it strikes me that people who are older have a lot more experience with people and and perhaps they've seen a lot more different situations and scenarios so i would be tempted to suggest that if i was 
providing education to to children, then there might be some social aspects about people, you know, wanting to scam other people and and stuff like that. That would have to include that it might not be appropriate for for older adults. Do you think customizing plans for age groups or specific groups would be worth? Well, I. It's not a really return on investment question, but whether it's it's a it's a something that would be worth pursuing, like effective, more effective. Yeah. So you know, thinking about lifestyle routine activities theory and criminology, like lifestyles matter, and you should always be targeting your education at people who are exposed to certain types of risks. So, if you are a very low income person who's older and doesn't have internet access in your home and doesn't own a computer, maybe all of the information on, you know, cybersecurity and computer hygiene are just not worth the effort, but maybe how to interact with strangers on the phone, maybe that's more important. So absolutely, I think that broad education and consumer education and awareness should be targeted based on how people spend their time and what access to potential fraud channels they have. Is there any research that you're working on right now that we should be looking forward to? Yeah, I'm working on a number of projects. So I have one AARP-funded project that focuses on gift card scams. That's where gift cards are used as the money transfer method. And for that, we're interviewing people who've experienced a gift card fraud. It's really interesting how much trauma some people experience from being a victim of a gift card scam. And those who lost more money, like over $5,000, even their heart rate goes up, even walking into the retail stores where they purchase the gift cards. And every time they pass one of those gift card kiosks where they're all Mm -hmm. sold, they have to look away. So I think it just shows that, you know, we don't think of financial crimes as causing much trauma, but that's absolutely false. Wow. Well, I look forward to that. And um, thank you very much for sitting down with me and taking the time to chat. All right. Happy to. If you're involved in cyber, you're often expected to answer questions on everything from the difference between Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E to the current value of a stolen credit card on the darknet. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have called it an expert in cybersecurity training. Scott Wright has been a security professional for 20 years, specializing in security awareness and compliance, and he's the founder of ClickArmor. But more importantly, He's a nice guy, and he's willing to answer my dumb questions, so let's take advantage of that and ask him this. What is security awareness? What does someone who is security aware look like? That is a good question, actually. It's not a dumb question. And it means different things to different people. Myself, coming from a risk management background, awareness, and actually you can verify this by going to standards like NIST 800-53 or in Canada, Canadian government's ITSG 33, 900 controls, most of which are technical, except for four. Well, sorry, there are four related to awareness and training. There's the AT family. First one says you must have a policy that states you do security awareness training. So it's not really training itself. That's just a a policy. And then there's one that says all staff must be trained on general security awareness. And then there's one that says you must track it or monitor it or do it annually. I can't remember. There's something like that. No definition of what it actually is. And then the the last one is usually, and you must do role-based security training as well. So that people who have privileges or responsibilities that are elevated get special training. So from that point of view, 
they're very, very simply worded, but it's indicating that there's a control associated with security awareness that is expected to somehow reduce risk. That's why, in my mind, awareness training can be thought of as a control for risk reduction. That's a really technical way to, to state it. And a lot of people don't think that way. A lot of them don't even know about that uh, application of the, of the word or the use of it. But from a, a general awareness point of view, I think a lot more people think of it in terms of culture to say, you know, are we generally able to respond, you know, as individuals or as humans to a cyber attack in a way that limits the damage? Let's put it that way, right? But I think there are a lot of different interpretations even within that. Uh, I actually, after I read the the book, The Security Culture Playbook by Kai Rohr and uh, Perry Carpenter, I actually posted on LinkedIn that I just read the book. And actually, I had had not read the whole book. I, I had read only a couple of chapters. And in the first chapter, they defined what security culture is. And I was really confused because it didn't really seem like they had a concrete or discrete type of definition that you could use to uh, apply practically. And in my mind, I was trying to say, okay, is awareness part of culture or is culture part of awareness or (laughs) is there something else that you add? So it was just confusing to me. And Kai actually responded to my post and, and tried to clarify it. And then I read the rest of the book and I kind of got where he was coming from, but that's a whole different perspective. So all this to say that, you know, awareness itself is different things to most people. It's very hard to get people to agree on what it actually is. But from my point of view, the reason we want awareness is for people to be ready to take an action or make a decision. What else, what other purpose is there to have awareness, right? So from that point of view, it's to me, it's, it's a risk-based control that we can actually use. And if we can improve people's awareness measurably, then we can say on a risk management uh, scale that we're doing better than we were before. And of course, risk is not an absolute. Um, We didn't talk about that, you know, in in previous uh, episodes, I did cover risk a little bit in in the elements being the assets, the threats and the vulnerabilities. And as one of those things goes up, then your risk goes up. But from an absolute point of view, there is no absolute risk measure for anything. It's really just used to determine what's the next thing I'm going to spend my next security investment dollar on. So if I have a whole bunch of risks that are itemized from highest priority to lowest priority, I'll start spending my investment on the highest priority things until I run out of money or until I get to an acceptable level of risk, which is something we talked about as well, right? What is the acceptable level of risk? So for most businesses, that's something that we can probably agree on to say, you know, we we want to try and keep things within a low risk tolerance. Thanks again, Scott. And a big thank you to Dr. Marty DeLima for sharing her perspective and for the enlightening conversation. There are, of course, links to the papers mentioned in the show notes if you're interested in diving into the research. In the meantime, though, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimology on Twitter, or email me at cybercrimology at gmail.com.